Ocean Junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction Junction, how's that function? I got three favorite cars that get most of my job done. Conjunction Junction, what's their function? I got hand button on. Yeah, I mean, frustration with the publishing industry, especially in the, in the age of the internet, will be a central theme of today's show. We were just discussing um, a personal squabble that Mr. Hansen is having. Uh, we're not going to name names or anything like that, and there's no real point in going into that. But I mean, who among us who writes either for a living or as a hobby or as a hobby but wants to make it a thing that they might be able to do as a living, as a living has not found themselves extremely frustrated with the publishing industry, uh, getting your name out there, getting coverage, getting picked up by the kinds of articles or by the kinds of publications that you admire or read or think that you're, you're good enough for. And we know that nepotism is rife in the journalistic and the publishing fields. You know, oftentimes the people that get the jobs at these publishing companies who then become the gatekeepers of the people that went to the right schools because they knew the right people or they have the right last name or something like that. And that's not to be bitter or sour grapes or whatever. But we know that the cream does not rise to the top in the United States of America. We know that this is not a meritocracy. As uh, a general rule, sure. Yeah. And, and, and so... And in a political sense, it's the people who generally have the most benefit from being at the top who keep it from being a meritocracy. The bigger you are, the less competition you want. It's just one of those rules of capitalism that I think we've all learned. Um, but also the bigger you are, you could share a little bit more. Right. And also cut your losses where you think that, you know, you might be able to cut your losses. Yeah, and as and far as I'm concerned, there's nothing wrong with big magazines. There's nothing wrong with magazines that are standard bearers or that have great histories or something like that. I think all that's great. And of course, you're going to want to hire your friends, you're going to want to hire people you know and trust and whatever. But I think for me, the biggest issue is if we had enough people, I always think of the 50s and 60s, if we had enough people reading these places, reading these magazines, going to these places for their literary diet, we wouldn't have as big of a problem. Because mm. when TV was still in its infancy and it was like a kind of a fuzzy box with some random channels on it, you know, what do you do? You, you read the New Yorker and the Atlantic and... Saturday Evening Post, and you need the new F. Scott Fitzgerald story, or the new Updike, the new Cheever. And, um, you know, literary culture is more central in the culture now, which is, uh, you know, is more centered in the culture, which is something that's kind of been lost now. And I really want to bring that back, and I think it's wonderful that the Arts Fuse is, is doing that, because we're at least acting as if, right, we're still in a, in a profoundly literary and cultural uh uh, critical culture. And so I feel like, you know, the more we can have people support this, the more it it will be good for everybody. Support so, the fuse. Yeah, support oh, the oh, fuse. The fuse yeah. And support literary culture in general. You know? Yeah, well see I don't be passionate I mean, about you what say you're we have a critical culture and a literary culture to some degree. I mean we have a culture that is definitely tuned in. Definitely watching a lot. Definitely listening to a lot of stuff. I mean, this is something that we brought up on the show before, and I think a lot of other shows and, and writers have, have touched on this before, is that, you know, we we think of politics sometimes in this country in terms of the media that we consume, you know? So yeah. if you read the New York Times, you might be considered a liberal. Right. Uh, if you're a right-winger who doesn't read anything close to the New York Times, you're going to think that that person is some rabid, you know, uh, a radical left winger when those who are on the radical left know that if you read the New York Times and abide by it and its opinion page you know that it's mostly a centrist center right type uh, type type rag and uh, and yet you know nobody actually does it on the, on the subway anymore it's like rare is the time that you see somebody actually with the newspaper or whatever yeah, it is everybody's like, on their phones right yeah so it, it's actually harder to tell who's who on the, phone, on the subway because you, yeah. they're all looking at their phones but you know uh if you see something with the New York Times, then, you know, they either think that they're they, – you might not be wrong to think that they have perhaps an elitist perspective or uh, I read this or because – Or the Wall Street Journal. Or if they're reading the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or any one of those, you know, papers that, you know, presume to attain to the heights of the paper of record or whatever it is. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't good reporting or journalism that happens in those publications because from time to time there is. But we know that they're also owned and run by people that have economic, social, and political interests. Yeah, which is also one of the things that makes the Arts View special, because we don't have any of those. I do, but 
the arts well, no, 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 no. We all views, have yeah. opinions yeah. and interests. Yeah. The arts yeah. views I mean, doesn't, I have but yeah. myself. There's a great cartoon I saw outside of uh, one of the professor's uh, doors at UMass Boston. It said two stick figures, and one said, I have political views. And the other one says, I have political views. And then the other one goes, great, let's hug. You know, I mean, everyone has views. We have arguments and opinions and perspectives, and all that's glorious. It's just... The arts fuse itself is not, repeat, not beholden to any interest but itself. Our readers and our editors and our writers. It's not like, oh, will Spacely Sprockets, you know, continue to advertise with us. So I think that one of the things that makes uh, the arts fuse special is that we also focus on stuff that isn't necessarily the mainstream. Um, Catherine Coldiron is writing a lot of really great reviews of some books that um, I'd never heard of prior and previous to prior to reading her reviews of them. And they're, they're succinct, they're interesting, they're penetrating and they're useful. And so I get a sense of what's out there, which I think every critic, you know, needs. And Most recently needs. from Catherine Cold Iron is a book or is a review of a book called the Ash family, mm-hmm. which is, uh, about a commune or a cult is the major question here. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it's hard to tell the difference. I don't know if the review actually ever actually gets to answering that question. Mm-hmm. I think it's more about how oftentimes it requires some uh, retroactive analysis in order to do that. But I mean, to you, it, what are some telltale signs of a cult? Well, um, of a cult, huh? I mean, a cult is really when you kind of accept whatever the leader says no matter what. When you don't talk to anybody outside of your own little circle. Um when you don't believe anything outside of your own little circle, right? Um, and when you have people who are all kind of doing the same thing, dressing the same way, mm-hmm. talking the same way, eating the same way, listening to the same music. So going back to something like Starbucks or something, you know, when there's yeah. one on every single corner, is it mm-hmm. cultish in the market? There's something for, about that. You know, yeah, I think so. There's that great uh, Instagram account. It's not a great Instagram account, but I think it's I think it's good enough. But... uh it's called like Midtown Fashion or whatever it is, mm-hmm. where it's just all these finance dudes in their Patagonia sweater vests mm-hmm. and, their <laughs> and, the, and, and the slacks and stuff. And, yeah. You know, where we, we, we don't think of a uniform uh, that's indirectly imposed on people. Mm-hmm. We only think of it in terms of like, uh, like for instance, like all the, the dystopian novels and stuff like that, like uh, 1984 or... Um, uh, Eugene Zemyatin's We or something where, you know, everybody has to wear the exact same clothes. Mm-hmm. I don't even, like, the Soviet Union didn't make anybody wear the same clothes. The market, you know, was limited enough so that people were probably wearing the same clothes or making right. their own or whatever. Yeah. But also, a capitalist economy ten, trends towards and wants for uh, homogeneity, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sameness and, and people not stepping out of line so that the hierarchies in place can remain in place. And... Is that cultish? Uh, is it just a trend? You know, because it can change, does it make it not cultish? Mm-hmm. You know, but are the arbitrary whims of the market uh, any less cultish than the arbitrary whims of uh, a charismatic leader? Right. And there's that sense that, like, what you buy is what you are, right? And Starbucks yeah, definitely consumer has a identity brand stuff. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Starbucks definitely has a brand. The Patagonia on the Wall Street Trader thing is pretty funny, too, because... If you notice, a lot of the, like, identity, consumer identity stuff has to do with lack in the sense of, like, I don't have uh, this kind of street cred, so I need another kind of street cred. So I may work on Wall Street and sit behind a desk all day and stare at a computer screen, but I want to make sure I got that Patagonia, you know, rough mountain climbing, man of the earth look. Yeah, that's the funny thing about Patagonia is that, you know, it's a... It's a luxury outdoorsy brand. Yes, you know, exactly. There's, there's people that that buy it because they probably they they may actually use the products sure. for their outdoorsy lifestyle. Sure. But then there's also the people that buy it because its price mark is slightly higher than you know mm-hmm. something you might get at TJ Maxx. Right. You know. So it's a status symbol. <laughs> yeah. And then there's that uh, the Jay Peterman on Seinfeld catalog where it's all these like romanticized <laughs> poetic vignettes about like as I was running down yeah, the yeah, Serengeti yeah. plain, I was in the company of many elegant antelopes and luckily i was wearing my peterman galoshes because it began to rain you know um and that's that that sense of like i don't just want 
you know, a pair of pants, I need an identity. And it's also like the richer you are, the more you buy into that, right? Like Martin Shkreli, that little gargoyle freak who was ripping people off yeah. gleefully for years. Well, he paid out the ass for the Wu-Tang. Paid out the ass for the Wu-Tang and for the, like, that, what is it, a limited edition? It was um, the only copy of Only copy of a Wu-Tang album for a yeah. million bucks. Right. Just so he could say he had it. Mm-hmm. And because it's a Wu-Tang Clan album, it's cool and edgy, and I want to be cool and edgy. Uh, the, yeah, but Wu-Tang didn't have to fucking create the, the false scarcity. Right. Exactly. <laughs> In the first place. Yeah. Maybe perhaps they are something to fuck with. Uh, <laughs> um, no, man. Cash rules everything around Cash me. rules everything around me, which is another example, actually, right? They're just trying to get the money. You would think hip-hop would be this radical anti-capitalist thing because it's... Sometimes it is. And sometimes it is because it's done by people who know what it's like to be under the boot of, you know, imperialism and capitalism and slavery, for God's sake. And yet... And most rappers are like, get the money, get the money, get the money. Get the well, there's money. a openly uh, capitalist. Well, no, there's a um, there is a contingent. Of there's there's a sort of radical um, people that are socially conscious people, but well, there's a social consciousness that's affiliated with black identity that is also extremely capitalist. Mm-hmm. That that is, um, I would say, probably like a uniquely American thing. You know, um, I know for instance, there's a lot of people that came out of the black radical movement of the '70s that gave up on things like the Black Panther Party. Uh, on communism, on leftist movements, and said, fuck it, you know, we're just going to go after, uh, we're just going to use the market mm-hmm. to, to get what we want for, for our people because yeah. our communities have been totally fucked, but we're smart enough, we're good enough, we're fast enough, we're, you know, and, 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 and we know things that other people don't know so that we can use the market to benefit our own communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's um, I mean, you can't blame anybody that says, like, we're going to go out and get ours because we've been fucked over a million times. Mm-hmm. But to me, as a leftist, it's difficult. It's it's a challenge to to, to my ideology because what it says is that uh, you can use the market to benefit an underprivileged class, uh, but restricts it to a certain group of uh, historically marginalized, underprivileged, oppressed people. We've gotten a little bit off the point of the yeah. cult versus commune thing here. Right. Uh, I think uh, one of the one of the main sort of um, social and cultural critiques that comes out of Cold Iron's review of uh, the Ash Family by Molly Dector uh, is this question of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability in today's society of extreme points of view, mm-hmm. of uh, whether it's political or whether it's a extreme personal decision that a person makes. The main character of um, the Ash Family is kind of like a uh, disaffected middle-ish class young woman, I believe, who says who who wants a, a different kind of lifestyle, a different way of. Uh, engaging with the people around her a little bit more from her personal relationships and so uh, she joins up with this uh, this family called the Ash family and then it's that vulnerability of ordinary life not providing everything that a person might want in life that makes them susceptible to potentially nefarious groups and characters I didn't necessarily appreciate that take because Mm -hmm. I think it's not about finding some sort of balanced middle where we can just continue on this, you know, mundane death march that we've been on for a very long time. Mundane death march would be a really good name for the podcast. Oh yeah, we should yeah. Uh if you have if you have suggestions for changing the podcast name to mundane death march or something similar, send them to the email address for us that you do not have. But uh but yeah, no, I think I think it's weird that a, that a review would that a reviewer would think about it as vulnerability mm-hmm. because they the the logical conclusion or the the, the next step or the 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 hinted at um, vulnerability that I think Cold Iron is getting at here is the extreme right in politics and the extreme left in politics. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if this review was had some sort of a sub level uh, desire to say that we might be able to get back to some sort of normative center for culture and politics. I don't know if you picked up on that as well. I don't know if you. I didn't that pick was... up on that. No. no. Uh, well, that's just my paranoia. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if I can. Uh, let's see if I can um, bring up the quote here. The subtitle, essentially, the, the summation of it is that the Ash Family is a full color illustration of how the modern world leaves people vulnerable to radical ideas. I think okay. radical ideas are important. I think radical ideas are not a bad thing. You know that you can't have. I don't think radical itself is a bad thing. You know, for instance. Like the baffler, just a couple issues ago, had, the whole thing was about populism and how populism itself is a bad word. 
you know, in the uh, main trade of, of media and political punditry. But populism is not a bad word. It just means that there are ideas that are attractive to most people, you know. And that's only a bad thing if most people want bad things. So there's, you know, and, right. and it might, and it might, and, and so that, yeah. but if something is popular, it's therefore not radical either, you know? So, so, so in this sense, radical may actually be more to the point because it is insular. It's uh, separate from society as opposed to something that is for all of society. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps I'm too limited in my own criticism of Cold Iron's critique here, criticism, and thinking that by being afraid of radical ideas, She's actually talking about things that are, you know, antisocial and anti-society as opposed to radical in our traditional political sense, which might, auction, might actually mean popular. When thousands are killed or injured every year in blowout accidents, does it pay to gamble on tires? Remember, one blowout may cost you much more than the price of new tires. Don't take chances. Equip your car now with a set of Goodrich Safety Silvertowns, the only tires in the world that give you lifesaver golden ply blowout protection. And here's good news for every motorist who prides himself on being a safe driver. If you wish to receive the valuable recognition that thousands of other motorists have had, here's what to do. Sign the Goodrich Pledge of Safe Driving. You'll receive full membership in the Silvertown Safety League, and in addition, you will get absolutely free a handsome Safety League emblem with red crystal reflector to protect you if your taillight goes out. There's no obligation Nothing to buy. Three very special young ladies, the Boswell sisters, lend their very special rhythm to Way Back Home. So next up in the magazine, we've got a piece from Steve Provisor. Uh, It's a jazz commentary. He talks about, it's titled Jazz and the Single Trumpet Player. And for more people... Uh, and what, what his, his, his main thing here is he's talking about the ways in which jazz trumpeters and jazz musicians specifically have been created to be more famous than others. Mm-hmm. Then, and, and sometimes that's a bad thing because for, for this piece, what he does is he, he talks about both Chet Baker, who most people listening to this program and even a lot of people who are not big jazz fans would probably know who Chet Baker is. Uh, he's also got, you know, a legendary life and all that kind of stuff and, People might know him from that. Uh, and he was also a vocalist. And I think vocalists sometimes have an easier chance of sometimes breaking through into popular or mainstream uh, consumer uh, consumption of music. But he compares him to Jack Sheldon. So he says far more people would recognize Chet Baker's name than Jack Sheldon. And that is unfortunate for Steve. But Yeah, I mean, I've heard, I've heard of Jack Sheldon before just by name. I couldn't tell you anything about him. I wouldn't even know what instrument he played for the longest time. But Chet Baker is very special for me. He was the first, probably, if not the first, one of the first jazz musicians I ever got into. He is accessible. He is. You know? Yeah. He's, he's, he's got a lot of good West Coast, cool jazz stuff that's not corny like it's smooth crazy. jazz. But it's, it's, it's great to listen to. But he's also a fan, he was also a virtuoso. Mm-hmm. You know? Never learned how to read or write music, apparently. He just, they were like, what do you want to do this key in? And he's like, I have no idea, just play. Mm. And he could just do it, which is pretty amazing. But of course he was famously beaten up mm-hmm. and had his teeth basically punched out of his face mm-hmm. because he was a junkie and oh, yeah. crossed the wrong dude. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that basically ended his career until uh, he came back in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, by then he that's, was kind of a legend, yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, of course, by then his his story was already legend. So there was this return of somebody who was great, and so there was this, you know, can he still play? Will he be able to do it with his new teeth and all this kind of stuff? Because right. of course, the embouchure is very important to the jazz musician, right? <laughs> and I guess your teeth have something to do with that, but you know, right? Yeah, it's the way you kind of pucker towards the horn, I believe, is how it is. Yeah, although puckering might not be what you want to do. Yeah, it's you like know, the way you knows? hold your mouth like yeah. when you breathe into the horn. It requires jaws. Yes. It requires... Many jaws, yeah. A number of evolution. And he had to relearn how to play trumpet all yeah. over again because of it, which is pretty amazing. Um, but the thing is, he was also kind of, and this is what uh, Steve kind of mentions, he was also very much a um, uh, an icon, and consciously there was an image created around him. Uh, you probably know the term, the James Dean of jazz. Yeah, where... Um, Lonely, haunted... Beautiful yeah. and alone. 
struck down before his time. Right. Or in, yeah. Lives fast, yeah. before dies his young, prime, yeah, yeah, corpse yeah. and blah blah blah. Yeah. And many of, of course, these James Dean was actually dead. Was actually yeah. dead, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Which was a pretty good career move. Um, but it's also that sense of like he's marketed that way, and uh, I can be a little bit uh, guilty of that because I did like that image when I first started listening to him. But I can also be exonerated from that because I definitely didn't know anything about him. I just heard he was a famous jazz mm-hmm. guy and I wanted to get into jazz. Um, but that's definitely part of the, the appeal of Mr. Baker. I remember being very struck by the um, the Chet Baker chapter from Sad But Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. By Jeff Dyer, yeah. yeah. The sound that he makes is the sound when you make, when you say something that makes your uh, partner uh, ashamed of you. Something like that. So that's, that regret is, is in there. And so he's the name that kind of gets bandied around a lot. Charlie Parker chose him, I think, specifically to jam with when he was on the West Coast, which was a big badge of honor. But Jack Sheldon not a lot of people know about and apparently was a lot more playful more of a jokester goofy had maybe even more of a bigger range than baker which i thought was interesting and also sang and so the idea that you know one guy is brought up as this kind of um poetic tragic soul and the other guy is just as good if not better in some ways and is not given the same kind of attention that he should what Steve Provisor says in his review is no qualitative difference in their artistry explains the discrepancy, nor is this a case of Sheldon being a musician's musician, someone who's playing is too esoteric, too ecstatic, or too subtle for the greater public to appreciate. Au contraire, my theory, Steve's theory that is, is that cultural feedback loops, the creation of a marketable image, exert low-level magnetic poles, inviting listeners to draw different conclusions about each man's comparative value as a musician. So apparently Steve also moonlights as a physician, or as a physicist, sorry, <laughs> who can also compare everything to uh, to the to the low-level magnetic poles. But yeah, it is it is a lot about marketing and image, you know, as mm-hmm. you say, this 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 tragic figure of, of Chet Baker. Yeah, and so I don't know if that's my fault coming through or if it's... Uh... If it's uh, the fault of the uh, the people who are promoting jazz, but there's definitely that sense, and I think that's that's kind of interesting to to realize that those those kind of market based uh, approaches are still in play with something as even Steve calls it an insular world. You know, jazz doesn't have as much of the you know public attention as rap or hip hop or. Um, rock and roll does it's weird almost to consider it to be market forces too, because it's like right. a lot of the ways it's it's. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I think oftentimes jazz is probably out so far outside of the mainstream yeah. that it, you, you know, the, the, the margins between success and non-success in a commercial way. Yeah. I don't know how big they are. Yeah. You know, like can't it's, be that huge. Yeah. And at least I would probably generally spread across. Maybe it's a little bit more reflective of the market where you've got, you know, you know, your, your, your Winton Marsalises or whatever, who uh, are the 1% and then there's everybody else. Yeah, you know, but right. in, within that, everybody else, you know, you've got the, you know, your your gig musicians who just you know pick up a gig once a week or wherever they can or something like that, in their tiny localized market, very much like Uber drivers of jazz music or something, you know. Yeah, or classical. Um, but then you've also probably got a similar kind of <coughs> maybe middle class, uh, similar to like the MFAs for writers where getting the MFA allows you to now get a job teaching at another MFA program, but it doesn't necessarily make you a writer or a a significant cultural person or anything like that. It just kind of allows the system in which, you know, that benefits from it to perpetuate itself. Right. And then who who do you learn from? Somebody who's published a bunch or somebody who just has an MFA? Right. So, and with jazz, I think there's a lot of an apprenticeship because you will work with different groups, you know, you'll have mentors and you'll have people that kind of coach you along. And then there's the people who just gig a little bit. Yeah. And then don't quite get the recognition. So, I mean, this Jack Sheldon guy is somebody I'm really curious about now because Steve talked about how he has a smoky uh, lower register and he can have like a really high uh, lyrical um register which is really interesting i want to go i'm going to go listen to him now and like this is kind of what i think of as like what's great about arts criticism in general is that like hey check out this amazing thing you don't know about and i think that's really crucial 
and without without somebody who's going to take the time to do it because an ordinary magazine would just publish a piece on Chet Baker and be like okay we did our Chet Baker piece probably in support of a new volume mm-hmm. release of Chet Baker's music right like neither Chet Baker or Jack Sheldon or Steve Provisor or the Arts Fuse is going to make a penny off of you know uh, or make make a shitload of money off of talking about Jack Sheldon. Yeah. You know, Steve's talking about Jack Sheldon because uh, nobody else is, uh-huh. and there, there's there's no there's no market motivation behind yeah. the coverage here that the Arts Fuse is doing. In conclusion, what Steve basically says is that the mythology of Baker as an outlaw created the difference in their public reputations, not their music. Uh, Baker's image was cooked up by an advertising and commercial machine that piggybacked on his looks and bad boy image. So going back to the uh, the James Dean, you know, right. type thing. He was a handsome man. Can't deny it. Image in order to turn him into an archetype of the romantic jazz figure. Shelton was far from white bread, but his availability as a person, his broad smile and comic precocity are not the stuff from which an alluring jazz mystique can be cooked up. In this storyline, Baker plays the ill-fated romantic lead, and Sheldon, even though he arguably plays the better trumpet, was selected for the role of trusty comic sidekick. go outside the arts fuse a little bit here uh this is more so to prove to you all that uh that we do read (laughs) (laughs) it's not just a facade and also because it's about book critics matt and i are both book critics and basically the uh the question from this piece it's the cover edition or it's the cover story from the i think it's the cover story Mm -hmm. yeah it's the cover story from uh, the April Harpers, called Like This or Die, by Christian Lorenzen. And the, the main question that Mr. Lorenzen uh, seems to ask here is, why do Matt and I suck? <laughs> he has a number of theories as to why Matt and I suck. And um, you, uh, for long-time listeners of the show, you know that we've talked a lot about the state of criticism and the purpose of criticism uh, and why the Arts Fuse even really exists is because mainstream publications have either entirely cut back their arts coverage or they have altered their sort of business model around what arts coverage actually means. And so instead of getting a piece like Steve Steve's on uh, talking about the, why somebody like Jack Sheldon uh, is overlooked compared to somebody like Chet Baker... Um, you know, of course you could ask questions like, well, maybe they shouldn't even be compared or, you know, all that kind of, there's all kinds of things, but at least, you know, it can, it can spark a discussion and you know that it's coming from the perspective of somebody who is, um, both a diehard fan of the music and the genre and the history, as well as has some level of expertise. Right. And, and Christian Lorenzen, uh, opens his piece by describing uh, two characters, basically some sort of a couple. They're kind of like, I imagine them as like a urban Northeast liberal kind of uh, upper class. Uh, they would have at one point been referred to as yuppies, right. uh, but probably not so young anymore type couple. And uh, their their behavior, their day-to-day life, and it's about Alex and Wendy. It says, Alex and Wendy love culture. It's how they spend their free time. It's what they talk about at dinner parties. When they go jogging or to the gym, they listen to podcasts on their phones. On Sunday nights, they watch their favorite new shows. They go to the movies sometimes, but they were bummed out when MoviePass went south, so now they mostly stream things. They belong to book clubs that meet every couple of weeks. Alex and Wendy work hard at their jobs, but they always have a bit of time to check their feeds at work. What's in their feeds? Their feeds tell them about culture. Their feeds are a form of comfort. Their feeds explain things to them that they already understand. Their feeds tell them that everyone else is watching, reading, listening to the same things. 
Their feeds tell them about the people who make their culture. People who aren't so different from them, just maybe a bit more glistening. Alex and Wendy's feeds assure them that they aren't lonely. Their feeds give them permission to like what they already like. Their feeds let them know that their culture is winning. Alex and Wendy believe in the algorithm. It's the force that organizes their feeds, arranges their cues, and tells them that if they like this song, video, or book, they might like that one too. They never have to think about the algorithm, and their feeds offer a kind of protection. Alex hates to waste his time. His time is so precious. It makes Wendy feel sad when she reads a book she doesn't love. She might have read one of the books her friends loved. If their feeds lead them astray, Alex and Wendy adjust them. There's only so much time, and when they have kids, there'll be even less time. Alex and Wendy aren't snobs. They don't need to be told what not to like. They'd rather not know about it. Of course, as Christian Lorenzen says, I don't believe that Alex and Wendy exist. But as a cultural journalist, as a book critic, I've been put on notice that I work for them. I love the overuse of the word feed here. You know, where uh, you think about how we normalize this idea of what's on our feed Mm -hmm. and how easily we use that word all the fucking time without actually thinking about what it might actually, what are the connotations of being fed? Mm-hmm. Coddled babies, children, you right. know? We're not feeding ourselves, we're being fed. And if you go back to some of the early episodes, you've heard Bill Marks talk about how um, he's basically the uh, the quixotic figure who's tilting at the windmill of the algorithm, you know, in his crusade for good arts criticism. And uh, I like to imagine him out here, you know, out here swinging a broadsword at, you know, that algorithms fly from all the yeah, different places. Yeah, I mean, places. the algorithm is the, is the windmill, right? It keeps yeah. perpetually circling in the same direction. Right. And, and why yet, would you and want to culture And yet you're only going at it because you think it's a legitimate target, mm. but it can change on you, you know, and, and you don't actually even know what it is. It's just a series of, it's just a, a series of numbers and code that try to shape your, your actual reality. Yeah. yeah, I mean, let's face it, like, outside of work and friends and family, the media you take in is a pretty big chunk of your life Mm -hmm. and your unconscious, your language. And so to have that be influenced by this uh, formula that, you know, crunches the numbers to find out what they think you want is really kind of messed up. If you think about it, it's actually a little bit of soul death because Mm -hmm. it's telling you what you should like rather than what you do like. And you're not going to find new and interesting other stuff because you're not going to know um about it because the the machine wouldn't have any idea uh dating i mean i met my girlfriend online uh initially from online dating and luckily we've had a great relationship so it did work out but like my friend got married recently and he said you know they met online as well a lot of people do but he said if if i had just followed whatever the algorithm on okcupid or whatever it was suggested i never would have found you Right. There are these jewels that are out there that you wouldn't really know about just because the things you answered in some stupid uh, quiz. And so at a certain point, you do have to try to remove yourself from the the machine or the process Mm -hmm. and engage in a totally different kind of behavior. Yeah. Human behavior. Human behavior. You actually have to learn about the person. In in, in the sense of this article uh, by Lorenzen, you know, you have to actually read a book. Mm-hmm. Or you actually have to do that. And reading a book is takes a long time. And it's it hard. It does. And it's and, not the immediate gratification right. the TV is. And, and it's not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And and yet now we've been... We now apparently live in such a wonderful fucking orgasm of television. Mm-hmm. You know, at all times. That, that like... You just yeah, why would you ever read a book when you can just get the exact... Apparent, well, what we're supposed to believe is the exact same sort of quality cultural uh, uh, experience and content from television. Television is hiring book writers mm-hmm. to write their fucking shows now. Right. Hollywood is hiring more book people to write their shows. Right. If you have a good book, it's a good book. And one of the ways you know it's a good book apparently is because Hollywood buys it and wants to make a movie out of it. Right. Or do a miniseries on it or something. Right. Which is nothing. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that in and of itself. No, but if that's going to be the standard uh, by which you judge something, as right. Lorenzen's point eventually, is that if... If your book doesn't get turned into a movie or a television show, mm-hmm. or if you don't get hired by Hollywood or uh, NBC or whatever, or HBO, HBO probably more so than NBC, or one of the streaming services even, mm-hmm. you know, then, um, you know, apparently you've right. failed. You've lost the eyeballs. You yeah. And it's that sense that, like, why dig into a novel that you have to think about when you can have the movie do all the work for you? There's this sense that, like, people feel that... To read is to be a snob and is to go for something that's a little bit beyond me, 
right? That I don't get it. And so naturally, if you feel like you don't get it, you shut down and you blame the thing. And what criticism can do in a lot of ways, and what Lawrenson points out a couple points when we talk about different authors he thinks are worth, worth looking into, is that, like, you know, there is actually something there if you can kind of have someone help guide you through it. I mean, how many classic works of literature did you read in high school that you needed a teacher to talk you through? And then once you had that, you were able yeah, to say, and then oh, still not really figured, And still not wondered why you spent the time reading the book. <laughs> yeah, right. And sometimes you can just say it's not for me. But in other cases, you just don't realize how your mind can be blown by being exposed to this stuff and kind of walk through it and have stuff pointed out to you. Someone giving you a guided tour. People go to, people go to um, uh, museums all the time. And they look at something and they're like, yeah, I'm having an art. <laughs> I'm having a total art movement right now. But unless you have a little bit of explanation and a little bit of guidance, you're like, oh, so this is really interesting. This is doing this and this is doing that. This is an interesting story. And I've never seen people more willing to make jokes about how pretentious art is than when they're in a museum. If you have something that can tell you actually no, this is something you might really enjoy and this is yeah. you can meet on your level. It's an insecurity thing, really. Yes. You know? it's, and, a, it's a cultural insecurity. And Lorenzen, Lorenzen comes to this a little bit uh, early on as well. He says, I'm not making an elitist argument, though I am skeptical of the popular and the commercial. To, to be interested in literature, all you need is a library card. Uh, literary writing is any writing that rewards critical attention. It's writing that you want to read and to read about. It's something different from entertainment. It involves aesthetic and political judgments, and it's not easily quantifiable. Negativity is part of this equation because without it, positivity is meaningless. Oh, I should mention that most of the, the kinds of reviews that he's talking about these days, and I think even The Fuse is, is guilty of this sometimes too, is that most people just write good reviews of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's rare that you actually read the bad reviews. We have infinite space because of the internet, but it's mm-hmm. weird how because of the internet and the way that the mechanisms or the the potential benefits of the me- of the internet have changed our behavior, make it so that, well, shit, I can, if I only write good reviews, that will make people like me, and I will do it for the likes, and then right. it will make me network, and that will give me prominence, and then if I get 15,000 followers, then all of a sudden I have status, and I have credibility, mm-hmm. you know? But if you did that just by praising the people around you, mm-hmm. on what on what is your credibility actually built? Yeah, and what kind of critical voice do you have? Uh, writers and their readers are all ill-served by a culture that treat their books merely as props for selfies or potential gift items. They deserve critics who can deliver painstaking appraisals within a tradition of lost and found books, and that itself requires the constant work of rediscovery. For better or worse, the best tool we have for this work is the book review. So, if you didn't think that Matt and I took our job seriously before... (laughs) (laughs) How wrong you were! (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like... I, I haven't written a lot of negative reviews, and I've I, I've spoken to you about this before and how I feel shitty about not writing really bad reviews. Right. You know, but also, we have a lot of freedom at the Arts Fuse yep. to cover what we want. Mm-hmm. And that might actually also be uh, perhaps a danger within the structure of the Arts Fuse. Because the Arts Fuse gives a lot of freedom and creative, um, creative freedom to its writers, uh, the only places that you actually get bad reviews in the arts views usually is from the music critics. It's it's either a bad performance, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in classical music, or oftentimes or not when you read Blumhofer's columns about classical music, it's not the performances that are bad. Mm-hmm. It's the selections. It's the other. It's the larger culture of what's expected to be performed in classical music right. that is lacking. We're probably also not going to spend our time reading the books that we don't want to read just so we can shit on them. Yeah, so there's part of a part of the thinking for me was a why tell someone, hey, this book sucks when they've never heard of the book anyway? Don't this book isn't worth your attention, but you weren't paying attention to it in the first place. But you could tell them why in a But you can tell way. them why, and then that becomes an interesting conversation yeah. in and of itself. Uh, the Shape of Water, I thought, was really like just hackily done as a story and didn't really make a lot of sense and if you're going to have someone fall in love... You didn't suspend your belief enough, man. Yeah, and people were telling me that. And I was like, well, look, I'm all about somebody wanting to fuck a fish monster. Uh, you know? <laughs> like, love like you want to love, baby, but... You're, you're, you're anti-anti-amphibia. Amph- yeah. You're an anti-amphibia. I'm man. an amphibiophobe. Um... <laughs> Damn, 
I should have gone with Amphibiophobe. Amphibiophobe, yeah, Amphibiophobe's oh, confession. That's why my book reviews aren't clever. They're just yeah. It. I didn't come up with it. Uh, you know, I didn't put that in there. But no, but the thing was is that I wrote it and I said, look, like this love story is not convincing. Mm. You need to have the person that she falls in love with, the fish monster. You need to like convince me that she's in love with this fish monster who basically just blinks and doesn't really do anything and acts like a fish monster. So it's like, why would this person fall in love with this fish monster? That doesn't really get well established. I bet you there are scores of women. Amphibiophiles. There are scores of women out there who are like, no, like, that's all my husband does is blinks like a fucking fish monster. <laughs> They're like, no, no, Gary's gills have just never been so appealing as I really <laughs> He before. sits on that couch and he fucking inhales Tostitos. <laughs> and he, he he swims in a giant vat of Miller Jaguar. <laughs> so how can you take my emotions away from me and my fish man? Fuck you, Matt. How yeah, dare you? You elitist bastard. And for us fish um, monsters out there. Yeah, and if there are any fish monsters out there in like fully <laughs> developed, mutually uh, beneficial and caring and sharing relationships, more more, more power to you. Uh, I was almost going to gargle to try to say it in fish language, but I'm not going to do that. I'm a better person. Let's talk but about what the... What's uh, funny is, though, is that after I wrote that review, I thought everyone was going to hate me because it got an Academy Award victory, I believe. For Best Picture, or at least a nomination that year. It was a couple of years ago, maybe. No, it didn't get Best Picture. Okay, but it was a nomination for Best Picture, I'm pretty sure. That uh, the uh, Moonlight got Best Moon- Picture. That was the big controversy one, okay. But it was nominated for that. I think it got Best Director. So it got really highly applauded in a lot of places, and I still said it was crap. And to be honest with you, like at least in the last year or so, of what I can vaguely remember, that's the review that most people have commented uh, on. For me. Of and, yours, yeah. Yeah, and said, look, I totally was glad someone wrote that. I agree with every word of it. Like, I'm, And it wasn't just like to be nice to me because they're my friend. It was like, I was so hoping somebody out there was going to call bullshit on this thing. It I want to get yeah. to a little bit about the form here because yes. you and I have discussed the form. Yes. Uh, because sometimes we are under deadline and we have to right. we have to give something to our editor and you know we it doesn't have to be great it just has sometimes to be we rely on the form so yeah. uh lorenzen says why do book reviews exist we know that books have historically been treated as news and as objects for evaluation we know that publishers might want to advertise in the vicinity of book reviews though by most accounts book reviews and newspapers have been unprofitable in modern memory we might add that books are something many writers are eager to write about Often for only modest fees, I can attest to that. But there is another reason that book reviews uh, have persisted for centuries. Nobody has ever figured out a better way to write about new books. The book review is and always has been an unsatisfying form. Uh, this is true. That's like that's a true fu- that's a true fact stated. Yes. The book review is a bad form, mm-hmm. at least for at least from a writer's standpoint. Oh, absolutely. You know, like honestly, like it's. The thing that makes me break out in hives the most about writing reviews is how much I have to leave out. Yeah, and he gets to that here. Um, in its newspaper iteration, it is a text of somewhere, and, and the online publications have essentially adopted some of this this newspaper iteration, especially if you're trying to do serious, you know, straight book reviews too. Right. Um, and for those of you who do read my stuff, I don't know if you do, uh, I try not to do... Hi, Mom. I try, <laughs> hi, Mom. I try not to do the straight book review all the time, and Bill actually lets me do that. I do uh, try to make them to be as much like short essays that have a little bit of open-endedness to them uh, so that they don't just become formulaic, although I do rely on a formula from time to time. Right. Um, He goes, uh, in its newspaper iteration, it is a text of somewhere around a thousand words tasked with summarizing, contextualizing, analyzing, and evaluating a work likely more than 50 times as long. The wrongs a reviewer can commit within this space are many. Clichés are pandemic. In reviews of a novel or a work of narrative nonfiction, a jury formula persists. Prolix, yet cursory summary, topped with... Is that prolix or prolix? How do you say that word? I would say prolix, personally. Prolix, yet cursory summary, topped with a smattering of more or less irrelevant biographical information, yielding to polite and generic adjectives of praise, compelling, engrossing, charming, before a dip into enthusiasm-draining caveats, placed into the penultimate paragraph to prove that the critic is, you know, a critic, and at last a kind conclusion to make sure we're all still friends and no one's time has been entirely wasted. 
a critic Lorenzo knows used to call this sort of review the shit sandwich. The pan can be as dubious as a form. The reviewer scolding an author for not writing a book she never dreamed of writing, slapping a conventional novelist with a Kafka stick, crucifying the celebrated writer for the sins of her admirers. By comparison, heaping praise and overrating books is usually a matter of acquiescing to publishers' presentation of their products. Publicity materials exist to be recycled by reviewers. I've done the shit sandwich before. Oh, yeah. I have um, too. I mean, for some reason, the formula is a formula for a reason. The cliche is a cliche for a reason. There is just simply not enough time and space to get into all of the important things about a book review. But... The weird thing is, though, on the other side, for those of you out there wondering, you ever wonder why a columnist opens up a piece with a quote from a thing that has nothing to do with the thing that they're actually writing about mm-hmm. is because you're forced to cut so much from a book review yeah. that you have to give yourself... You, you don't even try to condense it at this point because right. there's no point in condensing it. Right. What you do is you use a like boilerplate introductory kind of quote or reference to another work. So at least you've got some kind of comparative framework or some kind yes, of... Yes, to create a yeah, context. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and a lot of people just keep those quotes, you know, on a, on a, on a spreadsheet probably somewhere so yeah. they can copy and paste There are times where I've yeah. been like, why didn't I just have a notebook for every single yeah. quote I've ever found that I thought would yeah. be interesting? And it then be 8,000 Borgesian pages of labyrinth yeah. and yeah. quotation. But then also when you get to the end of that introductory paragraph with your uh, uh, bullshit excuse for a comparative framework, yeah. you're down to only having to write 800 more words. Mm-hmm. And then you can, and then it makes cutting things so much easier mm-hmm. from the book review itself. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I mean, because I do the um, the book, uh, the author readings for Becoming Attractions for the Artsies. And the number of times, I don't even summarize them anymore because I'd just be paraphrasing what somebody else wrote. Yeah. I'll just take what the summary is and just put quotes around it and say, this is what somebody else said about it. Mm. I can listen, you can listen to an album, you can watch a movie in two hours, whatever. A you book, can't read every book. If I'm going to do six right. every two weeks, it's just not going to happen. So instead, I yeah. just put the quotes down for what somebody else says. And if I have particular knowledge about something, I'll, I'll do that. Would you go to a point of doing the author and book events in the Boston area for coming attractions only to that which you can speak on? I would if I could do it professionally. If I could have 40 hours a week to, like, cover everything, I'd be fine with that. Would you impose on yourself the Wittgensteinian? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I will always impose on myself the Wittgensteinian anything. Oh, I'd never do. I'd never do. Yeah, I Uh, definitely will. Is Um, it a duck? Is it a rabbit? Fuck you. That's my (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know why you're giving me these duck rabbits, but I see it's an elephant, and that's the end of the story. Um, but when he says the adject- generic adjectives of praise, my God, have I seen that a hundred times. And I've been guilty of it myself. Compelling, engrossing, charming. Oh, yeah. I use those all the time. No. I'm like, oh, I will admit it. I, I, I'm, I hate having to say it. I wince when I say it. But God damn it, sometimes there are no other words I can use, but it compels my interest. Adge- adverbs get an insane amount of work out yes. of these things. Yes, and 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 unexpectedly, and a lot of the times, I think most a lot of people that are just doing hack book reviews are just thesaurizing, mm-hmm. thesaurizing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the word good or bad. Yeah. But um, getting back to the piece by Lorenzen, he says that book coverage is not only meager but shockingly mediocre. The pablum that passes for most reviews is an insult to the intelligence of most readers. One is tempted to say perversely that its disappearance from the pages of America's newspapers arguably caused for celebration. It might have been if a renewal had followed collapse, and for a while it seems one would. And this is where he gets into the subculture of the bloggers. Uh, the decade of the d- decline of book coverage or book reviews as a print medium that was of good quality uh, saw the rise of the blogger. Uh, the early book bloggers, typically amateurs, many of whom uh, have gone on to become authors and critics for mainstream outlets, among them Mark Athatakis, Maud Newton, Mark Sarvis, Levi Stahl, Tao Lin, were an anarchic bunch pursuing their own idiosyncratic enthusiasms and antagonisms. Uh, Sam Tenenhouse, then editor of the New York Times Book Review, was a frequent target of their ire, envy, and occasional awe. Constricted neither by convention nor by editors, the bloggers at their best popularized worthy but obscure writers, circulated the most interesting criticism that caught their eyes and devoted tremendous energy to indexing the literary scene. They were passionate. At their worst, they aired uninformed opinions about books they hadn't read, but most of the work was a tonic. Group blogs such as The Millions, recently purchased by Publishers Weekly, 
electric literature, uh, and HTML giant became forms for recent MFA graduates and geographically isolated aspiring writers to work out their ideas in public and form their own communities. But, like, it's really daunting to think that you can still do that, you know? Mm. Like, the millions is, is ages old now. HTML giant is probably among those that he lists there. Probably, it's, gone. it's definitely gone. It's been gone for, for years. Yeah. Um, but the guy that started it, um, he, he writes like a book a year, like two books a year still. I can't remember his name. It's all like this really like bitter and angry uh, working class schmuck type stuff. Like he's kind of like, I think he's like a um, bit of a, uh, like a Bukowski, I think. Okay. For the 21st century. Um, I've never read any of his books, but um, you can still read everything that's on HTML Giant, I think. But it's it's ceased to be a, a place for, for, for a while now. Um, electric literature, too, like... Very commercial. I get their newsletter and stuff, but, you know, they're mostly responding to the times in a way that I think is part of what's wrong with cultural criticism in general now. Like, they do the um, read more women thing. Nothing wrong with reading more women, but it's like, it makes it means more to have the read more women series uh, after Donald Trump gets elected than, I right. guess, you know, it would have, you know, if Hillary Clinton got elected. Sure. Um, you know, they may have justified a read more women series if Bernie Sanders had gotten elected, Yeah, you know, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And of course you want to be aware of, and you want to be supporting, um, uh, women writers. Uh, but you know, it's Paris review probably copped that then because they have a feminizer canon series that they're doing. Oh yeah. 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 Well, they, they, they know that people are going to click on, uh, the best books by women. Yeah. More so than somebody's going to click on the best books by uh, white men from the 70s. Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> or the best books in general, you know, that are right. that are generally accepted by the canon or something like that. Because they know that uh, that's what their readers want. Mm-hmm. You know? And even if it just means that you pile up a bunch of books that you're never going to read on your on your coffee table, uh, at, least at, least they, at least you bought them and at least they're signifiers. Right. You know, for people that come over, if you've got, you know, the, 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 the last um, uh, great 10 books by... Popular women writers who are writing as women for men, women, and you know, hearing, yep. hearing, hearing themselves. And as roar. a good liberal, I try to get as much, you know, writers that I otherwise wouldn't have gravitated to as I can into my literary diet. Who's know? the most popular woman writer that Americans are probably aware of in the history? So from let's say from the twentieth century onward. From the twentieth century onward, most people have heard of. I mean, and like, and like probably like in and a buy literary and, sense, like and buy and consume just in general. Okay, well, so in a literary, I mean, like, if well, it's like just, if it's just, Clark like, if it's or, just uh, most, it's probably, like, Sue Grafton, or, uh, the M is for murder, yeah, A is for whatever. Maybe Ag- Agatha Christie. Yeah. Maybe, uh. Sylvia Plath. She doesn't um, have that many books, though. She doesn't, but yeah. she's very widely read. Yeah. Who's the. Toni Morrison, Jamie Tan. Joan Didion. Joan Didion, yeah. Flannery O'Connor, Maybe. I would wager that the most popular selling female writer, who's not actually American but made her career in America, is probably Ayn Rand. Yeah. Ayn Rand is, is a very popular seller, yeah. And so that's the other thing, too. It's that when the Modern Library did their top 100 English language novels of the 20th century, they also did a reader's poll of what they thought. And so, you know, the populist in you wants to say... And so I, the Modern Library Top 100 that I read, anyway, the English one, the English language one, uh, I thought was really interesting. Ulysses was number one, Great Gatsby, all the writers I really love are in the canon, right? And they're all there, and I've had great experiences reading those books just because they're in that list. So that's the critics' consensus, right? That's the people who, like, spend their life reading. Um, I was thinking of Nora Roberts. Oh, Nora Roberts, she sure. writes yeah. the most books and probably yeah. is... Prepared, Joyce like, Carol Oates writes a ton of books. Well, Joyce Carol Oates just does not, knows nothing but right. Apparently. Um, but so so the Modern Library critics had their top 100, okay? And then the good populist in me wants to say, yeah, well, what do the critics know? What do the readers, what do the people who wrote in it vote mm-hmm. say? Well, Harper Lee would be another one. She just won the big book challenge from BBS to Kill a Mockingbird, which I've never been able to get through. Oh, yeah. That's right. That and was then there the, was the uh, Watchmen, and then that was all that. But again, somebody who only wrote one book, really. Yeah. Uh, well, one novel. Right. And then one fake precursor novel yeah, that nobody that likes. Nobody it's, likes. It's not canon. Apparently so. Yeah. But uh, so then the so then there's like that sense of like okay, well, what do the critics know? And then the the 
readers voted in, and dear God, the, the people who voted on the Modern Library top 100 list are apparently not living in the same world the rest of us are, because I, I saw ran this. was all over that I list. saw this list. What was it called? The Modern Library top 100 novels of the 20th century written in English. And that reminds me of that. The reason I thought of that was because of what you just said about Ayn Rand being incredibly popular. Because, like, but if we don't like her, are we misogynists, or nope. is it because she's a misogynist we cannot like? Her? It's because she's a terrible writer with a stupid <laughs> philosophy. I mean, I'd say the same thing if she had X Y chromosomes or or whatever. No, I mean, like, it's not misogynist to hate Ayn Rand. I mean, Ayn Rand is uh, a shallow and pedantic and vicious and foolish propagandist um fit for people who are either freshmen in college or who have the reading capacities of somebody who's a freshman in college at whatever age they happen to be okay so the top books are atlas shrugged by ayn rand yeah was that number one number one number one the fountainhead by ayn rand number two number two battlefield earth by l ron hubbard the no Lord of the choice. Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Sure. I, I guess that means... The Just tri- give us the top the ten. series. Just give it... Yeah, that would be the series, yeah. yeah. So it's Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead, what, Battlefield Earth... Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, 1984. 1984. Anthem by Ayn Rand. Anthem by Ayn Rand. <laughs> uh, we the Living by Ayn Rand. Okay, that's number eight. <laughs> The Invader's Plan by L. Ron Hubbard. Number nine. And number ten is Fear by L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> wow. So, okay, let's actually keep going. What's, let's go to 20. Oh, what's, what's well, you're going to love number ten because number ten is the one that's usually at the top of every uh, list by the Modern Library and most um, yeah. uh, lists of the best book from the 20th century. Uh, it's also the book uh, by which I... Uh, kind of make my bread <laughs> ulysses by james right. joyce so number 11 yeah number yeah, 11 okay. also like that's i find that to be um dubious that that's the reader's pick uh and then you get into catch 22 by joseph heller okay. number 12 gatsby f scott fitzgerald dune by frank herbert okay uh the moon is a harsh mistress by heinlein uh, and then Stranger in a Strange Land by uh, Robert A. Heinlein again, or Heinlein. Uh, a Town Like Alice by Neville Schutz, or Neville Shute. I've these, heard of it. Yeah. This isn't books I don't know about. This is what the people are reading. Brave New World, Huxley, Catch from the Rye, Animal Farm, Gravity's Rainbow. No fucking way! Yeah, really? No fucking way! Really? These, I mean, you know. Yeah, the readers are lying. Yeah. Grapes of Wrath, I believe that. Yeah. Slaughterhouse-Five. Sure. Gone with the Wind. Sure. Lord of the Flies. Sure. We're up to... That was 25. So there you go. Yeah. So it's like Elron Hubbard and Ayn Rand is dominant of the top 10 and even the top yeah. 15 positions. So what's the role of the critic? Well, it's to keep people from thinking Elron Hubbard is a great writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Critics, critics have been fucking up then. And to cycle back, you asked me what a cult was? It's yeah. when you think L. Ron Hubbard was a great fiction writer. That's amazing. Now, I say that not having read any of L. Ron Hubbard's fiction, in fairness. However, yeah. based on what I know about L. Ron Hubbard and his other activities, yeah. I would be very dubious to I assume recently, that his I, fiction is it. I recently re- rewatched The Master, and it made me want to... Uh... Go read some Hubbard. I know, right? Just yeah. for the fun of it. Yeah. He used to just crank them out. He'd write two or three a week or something. That's just... amazing that that's so high for yeah. so much, so much Rand. So much. Well, that's the thing about Ayn Rand is that you can see why people like her. Because some people really love being told that all they need to do in this world is say, screw you to everyone and do is what they be want be a all selfish asshole. I'm a genius. And who doesn't love that? I mean, who yeah. isn't like... I'm like that at least, you know, 25% of the time. <laughs> right? I mean, who isn't like that in some way, shape, or form? So it's like it's so much easier to, like, take in those kinds of messages and to really love those books. And then... And this is what the critic needs to do to step in on. Then you say, it's a great book. It's a great writing. It's great literature. Because you happen to like it. Mm-hmm. You happen to, to be into that. So there you have it. Uh, we, book critics are uh, give us a break you know yeah. we're trying we're give trying us some love. 
And give the books some love. Yeah, but uh, I guess it doesn't matter because no matter what we do, people are going to assume that uh, the best book of the 20th century is Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Bad book. Uh, John Galt's an asshole. Yeah, uh, I don't care who he is. I do think that train systems should be better. I think that's a great idea. I think that's fine. Wonderful idea. But the capitalist going on strike is, um, it's a bullshit premise. But that does it for this episode of the Arts Fuse. Check out the magazine online at artsfuse.org. If you have uh, the inclination to support what we do at the Arts Fuse, please visit us on Patreon. The Arts Fuse is ed- the editor in chief of the Arts Fuse is William Marks, and my co-host, uh, as always, is Matt Hansen. Hello. Say goodbye. goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Lucas Spear. We'll see you next time. Thank you.